Today is April 4th, and welcome to another edition of the Monday Mess Hall here on the Views from the Crow's Nest podcast by Fisher Jordan. We are a New York-based strategy consulting, thought leadership, and outsourcing firm helping business leaders exchange complexity for clarity. Our approach is to provide decision makers in financial services and healthcare with clear strategies backed by analytics and enabled by tailored technology solutions. If you're new around here, again, this podcast is called Views from the Crow's Nest, and we talk about a lot of things here, mostly in the domain of finance, technology, data science, and various other domains of the business sector. But this is called the Monday Mess Hall, which is a series that we're doing as part of this podcast. We try to record and edit and release the conversations in the same day. So anything that you're hearing in this episode was just recorded this morning. We have broken that rule a few times, but for the most part, that's what we stick to. Secondly, our full-length episodes are more of the classic interview style with subject matter experts, but we wanted the conversations on the mess hall to be a little more off the cuff while also focusing more on current events or maybe some hot-button topics that are even more specific than the trends that we discuss in our longer-form episodes. And although expertise is welcome, the conversation is the point on the mess hall, not necessarily finding solutions. Currently, the Monday Mess Hall conversations are between Fisher Jordan team members, but if you would like to get in on this, then feel free to reach out to us at engage at fisherjordan.com. My name is Nathan Johnson, and this podcast is only interesting because the people doing most of the talking are a lot smarter than me. I just ask the questions around here. Today, I'm joined by Shidish Nanda and Boaz Salik to talk about ethics and legislation in data modeling and artificial intelligence data privacy in the California Consumer Protection Act, and some recent empirical methods for task variation training in robotics. That's the setup. Let's get to the conversation. Welcome to the mess hall here on Views from the Crow's Nest. Great to have you guys here today. Great to be here, Nathan. Happy to be here as always. So following the structure that we had set up from our last couple episodes where we've got our quick bite, we've got our big dig, and we've got our closer. So just to open things up, we're going to talk a little bit about some more topics about AI here. Uh, This one comes from our Twitter feed, actually. If you're not following us on Twitter, that's Fisher Jordan NY as in New York. Give us a follow. That'd be great. Um, But an article from The Sun talking about a test case of AI that invented 40,000 potentially lethal chemical weapons from a data set of known hazardous compounds. Now, it didn't actually synthesize them, obviously, but it assembled the components in a way where going through the data set that the experimenters ended up with (laughs) a data set that's essentially like 40,000 potential chemical weapons, again, Computers are just doing exactly what they're told. So what I want to talk about here today, just to open things up, since so far the goodness and badness of an AI is dependent on who is programming them and for what purpose. And obviously there's a lot of people that are talking about that in different ways, other podcasts other than ours. But do we think we'll start to see regulations around this kind of activity soon? And then kind of partner to that when does training in ai start to become an issue of ethics uh whether you're doing it as a hypothetical or not so sound off guys what do you think yeah so the first thing that this topic reminds me of is uh something similar which our professor in college used to discuss like he also had a similar setup 
similar data set and do a modeling exercise and everything. And he also asked us to like switch and find out kind of the negative indicator instead of the good thing. And then he gave us the question like, okay, wonderful model, everyone, like whatever the model you created, that's all great. But uh, what do you think? Like, uh, is it right what you just did? So like, we are all a bit shocked <laughs> at that moment because it was just a modeling exercise for us at that point of time and we were treating it as such and we were disregarding the um, idea behind it or the as you said the ethics part behind it so like the conclusion at the end of the class that he gave us was that something of the sorts of of the oath that doctors take the hypocrites oath something of that sort just to start off at least uh, as a mere brick and mortar of data science ethics data modeling ethics basically uh something of that uh, something along those lines and he made us uh, create our own oaths and <laughs> kind of like take it in, in in the class that we took under that professor so that this is what uh that reminds me of and obviously what you said that <clears throat> finding uh like it's probably easier to uh i'm just imagining in this particular example where we where it found uh more toxic chemicals like harm so I think I was reading up on it and it said that it was trying to actually find life-saving drugs with various combinations. And it probably is easier in that case to find life-threatening ones because of all the conditions that we have. So for maybe I was thinking like for life-saving, we need an and everywhere, A and B and C to make it life-saving. And if you just flip maybe one of those, it becomes life-threatening for whatever reasons. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not surprising that the AI was able to find that many substances. And my understanding was they, they basically, like you said, just, they just had to flip something in the logic. So it, I think probably it was a database meant to suppress poisonous substances. So they just flipped that around and said, instead of suppressing poisonous substances, why don't we try to find poisonous substances? And then that's what kind of got the ball rolling. But uh, Nathan, to answer your question, I mean, would anyone be surprised if it became known that a variety of government labs are already doing this kind of stuff in secret? I doubt it. And uh, I was listening to, I, I already referenced that there are other episodes that have, that have covered this. And I was listening to one that was specifically talking about machine learning AI. And it was kind of going over that question of, again, if the computer is doing, performing its instructions as given, right? then we need to be very careful about who's giving them the instructions. And there is, there's some opaque nature to that of like, who's actually doing what with some of these tools out there right now. So I doubt it would be surprising to learn, um, as you said, Boaz, that some of those, some of these things are already happening, but I'm actually wondering in response to what shit has just said, if there already does exist like a, or if there should become a, in the same way that the Hippocratic Oath is like a well-known code of ethics that governs medicine, uh, if we need to develop a code of ethics for things like data modeling as these technologies become more advanced, I don't actually know if something like that exists currently that, that sort of governs the body of work as a whole. But um, I would definitely be interested to learn more about that. You know, it, it does seem like there are a few proposed... Um as you mentioned, uh, Nathan, like a data science code of ethics, whether it be the data science 
uh, Association. There's uh, something called the Oxford Munich Code of Conduct. So there are a few of these, probably, you know, handful of, of major proposed paradigms in terms of the code of ethics for data science, which, you know, you hope would govern the behavior of most professionals in the field. I don't think it necessarily excludes specifically this kind of thing where if you have a bad actor who knows how to program and he gets his hands on the wrong data set could wreak a lot of havoc i also want to make sure i state i'm not trying to overly sensationalize this it's just interesting when these things kind of happen and then uh the the researchers are a little bit surprised by oh like that actually worked and it worked really really well <laughs> should we be concerned about how well that worked um so i i realize that this isn't like oh my gosh let's let's make sure that we're we're panicking about something else here but i i think that out of this topic the, the thing to that will emerge to to keep an eye on uh, as we've talked about here is the developing ways of governing who's doing what with it and and potentially like looking at like a data science Hippocratic oath almost that, that would eventually come out of this. Yeah, I mean, uh, just going down that rabbit hole a little bit further, Nathan, it's, it seems maybe it's possible. It, it seems difficult to imagine how you could regulate the actual use of, of data science techniques. It, it's kind of like, uh, oh, no one's allowed to run a neural network unless they get prior approval or something like that. It, it just seems pretty far-fetched, especially in our country with free speech and stuff like that. A slightly more practical approach might be, and th this very likely will move in this direction, is being a little bit more restrictive about the availability of data sets that can be used for this kind of stuff. So I think in, in this particular case, they used a publicly available data set of known toxins. So things like that, which are obviously kind of critical enablers in order to to do the the bad acting that that we're worried about. That could be a, a more uh, realistic way to go about it. That would be really interesting, and actually, that makes a lot of sense in terms of restricting the source rather than the uh, the ways it can be used. Um, just because it would be easier to do one than the other. Well, on this topic of controlling data sets that tangentially relates to the topic of data privacy, um, which we've talked about a little bit here on this podcast before, um, the different emerging problems and, and uh, potential responses to things that we, we never really knew we'd have to think about um, you know, 20 years ago. Um, but as data continues to become both a, a more and more valuable and, and more and more powerful item, I suppose, uh, we see things starting to either regulation or or other forms of response to like how we're actually, how we are using it and how companies are using it. Um, so this story that we're going to talk about here for our big dig is concerning something um that's right now it's only happening in california basically the headline is about data inferences the attorney general in california said that data inferences about somebody constitutes personal information which then must be shared with that person if requested um, as i said thus far this is unique to california um, but i think it's an interesting test case for this and what we mean by data inferences before we we go into the discussion aspect of this you often see this with targeted ads where um, it's kind of 
based on things that you have searched for before. It's not the same thing as like receiving a targeted ad for a specific thing that you've searched for. Um, instead, it would be you've searched for certain things and now you're getting a targeted ad for something that is related to those. So maybe like uh, an example that was given in the article that we'll link in the description. Um, if it's known that you are a male between the ages of 30 and 45 and you recently shopped for sandals based on what a great many people have already done like it's reasonable to offer an ad for sunscreen like that's that's an example of a data inference so there's a lot of ways that we can address this topic here today um we could first just say do we think that those things qualify as personal information um but i also want to come at it from a different angle related to an article that we've published about um, the potential use cases for web presence information in credit decisioning. If we start to see privacy crackdowns on web presence data and inferences, giving those things equal footing with other personal and private information, does that help or hinder that potential use case um, in the credit decisioning idea that we had? So kind of come at it however you want to like what what thoughts does this conversation bring up for you and we can we can kind of see where the conversation goes from there but let's dig in so firstly like to address your question on if they qualify as personal information i think that's that's a bit debatable but at least what i think is uh, it does not qualify as personal information because uh, essentially it is being inferred from the information that has been provided by the customer in the first place and when like it is when it has since it has been inferred uh, by using i would imagine at least some kind of sophisticated methods like i don't think it's uh, like it would be like very simply derived uh, that even for your example of sandals and sunscreen it would have been derived on the basis of a lot of data collection and assumptions also in the model building exercise behind that so what i feel is at least uh, inferences should not be classified as personal information because again like i think from algorithm to algorithm it will differ right like uh, my algorithm may say like uh, uh, that when a person buys sandals he is expected to buy uh, sunscreen also with a probability of say 70 percent somebody else's algorithm may say it but with a different probability or some different product so I think it will differ from algorithm to algorithm. So that's why I think personal inferences, as long as it's like uh, not like blatant, I would say like blatantly derived from uh, the personal information provided in the first place. I think inferences should not be classified as personal information. And obviously, like coming to the next question, which you asked about whether it helps or hinders, at least in the credit decisioning uh, world, I would say it obviously hinders because I think in credit decisioning, every variable lost uh, is going to create a bit of a poorer decision making, I would say. And every variable involved in the credit decisioning process, like uh, whatever I've seen to date, uh, it's 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 highly useful to in like different steps of the process of uh, like you know giving out the credit finally. Like may not uh, some variable may not directly affect the probability, but it helps make decision somewhere else. So it affects it maybe indirectly. So. I believe it will definitely hinder. And again, as uh, they're coming back to why it would hinder again, I believe because uh, 
personal inferences are again like it is driven driven by algorithms and that should not classify as personal information to start with and uh, every bit of data which is going into the credit decisioning process is actually going to help make a better decision for the customer uh, so like the customer as long as he's okay with the initial personal information that he or she provides uh, they should probably be fine with the inferences drawn from it because uh, Obviously, the initial set of personal information that's provided is taken with due permission. So, and whatever the credit decisioning is doing, like whatever is happening behind the curtains, is using a lot of variables and is, and everything is being done in, in to give like the best possible product to the consumer, uh, keeping everything in mind, all the variables that they have inside, and it obviously helps make a better decision. So I agree with that, Shirish, and and just uh, I just uh, I was thinking of just backtracking a little bit and and clarifying. So I think what the the term they used was data inferences, right? So I, I just want to kind of backtrack and explain in case there are people in the broader audience that where it's not one hundred percent clear. So a data inference is basically any model that is built by by someone that that holds your personal data. So the California law, I think it. The, the part that's not under dispute is the fact that people need your permission to use your personal data. So your age, your um, your height, you know, your address, your payment history, whatever it is, right? So right. I think that part is clear. The, the part that I think is being debated here is most firms who buy that data don't just directly use that data in their decisions, right? Like, like knowing that I'm... Um, you know, a 49-year-old guy isn't going to help you decide whether to give me a credit card or not. So what they do is they combine these these pieces of information into what's called a model. So uh, one model that most people are familiar with is the credit score model, otherwise known as FICO. And that model uses a variety of pieces of information from different aspects of your, you know, your demographics, your, your payment history, your credit history, et cetera, and kind of combines them into one score that um, you know, at the surface doesn't tell you anything new about that person because it already used known sources, but it kind of um, extracts uh, some essential characteristics like your propensity to default on a loan and puts those into a score. So so what, what this specific um, question is about, and, and for every model like the FICO model, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of models that are being used every single day by um, by banks, by um, online and offline marketing companies and agencies, um, credit card companies, healthcare companies. You know, this whole revolution that we talk about, which is data analytics and data science, is about building more and more and more accurate models that tell you different things about a person's um, likely behavior, likely preferences, and stuff like that. And, and this specific opinion is now saying that in addition to getting your permission to use the underlying data that's fueling these models, these companies will now have to disclose the actual models themselves. Um, and I think that's the part that's going to be pretty controversial because then that, that basically kind of shakes up the foundation of many, if not most, data-related businesses out there, which is a growing part of our economy, you know, whether it's financial services, whether it's sales, whether it's marketing, whether it's um, healthcare, product development, et cetera. Um, so I think that's the part that we're going to see 
be be pretty contentious if it is really if there is a really bona fide attempt to enforce that. It's fascinating, and I I think I must have missed the aspect that uh, an inference is a specific type of model uh, according to what you're saying here, uh, or at least if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly. And yes, this is this article was written about an opinion about basically like are we interpreting this act correctly? The um, the California Consumer Protection Act. Uh, again, this is starting in California. And I, I wonder if the contentiousness of what's being proposed here, as you noted, Boaz, would slow down any sort of national conversation that, or, or even global, um, although, of course, it gets more complex if we start to talk about data use uh, on a global scale. But um, I do wonder if the controversial nature of it would, would make it fairly fairly slow um, to enter any sort of larger conversation outside of this test case, I suppose. But again, we're about things that are just starting to show up here on this podcast. Do you think, Boaz, that these things that uh, this opinion are saying should be considered personal information, that these should be included in that sort of that sort of a interpretation of it or no? Well, so, so like with most things, I think there, there's what appears at the surface and then there's the dynamics behind that that are driving it at the surface it sounds great like why wouldn't you want to know i mean why wouldn't i want to know how amazon knew to um put up camping gear like 30 seconds after i was googling you know camping areas in my area like i'd love to know that right like do they have me on some camping score that they have or like what's going on right but what what's i think what what's really kind of the, the the dynamics behind it is this idea that um there's a whole school of economic thought uh, a large and growing school of economic thought that says that um your data so anything about you is what people are calling your data right so like if if you saw me on the street and you saw that i was um you know had curly hair that's my data and now if you go and use that then you're using something that belongs to me. Um, and people are calling this the new gold. Like this is the gold mining of the 21st century. And uh, you shouldn't let people use your data to go out and, and do gold mining and keep the gold for themselves. You should keep it for yourself, right? So that's kind of the, the, the underlying um, argument. And then they point to, to people, you know, places like Google and Amazon and Netflix that have made billions and billions of dollars by mining that data. And they say, those billions of dollars could have been yours if you only had some legislation to protect you from the theft of data that's, that's going on right now about you, right? When in reality, it's just, I'm going on Amazon voluntarily. I know they're watching what I'm doing. Um, I know they're going to offer me products based on what I've already purchased. I know Netflix is going to do the same thing with, with regarding to my view, viewing history. And I consent to it because, frankly, I find those those suggestions helpful a lot of the time, right? So, so there's a little bit of a discrepancy between um, the surface of it, which seems something very consumer friendly, but then when you kind of dig into it, you and and look at the potential consequences. You're talking about destroying the Googles and the Amazons and the Netflix and you know thousands and thousands of smaller businesses that rely on that. So. Um, 
you know, does that make it wrong? No, but I, I think people should at least be aware of what the real um, ramifications. No, it's not just like a little convenience thing that you know gives you a little bit of insight into how people make decisions. It's something that will undermine a lot of different business models that exist today. Yeah, that's well said. And something as you were saying that that kind of um, emerged. It's not even if these things are like cer certain legislations had been in place uh, from the get go. It's not like would have the ability to turn it into the the gold that's promised, right? Like I don't even know the first thing about where to begin with how to actually turn the data into value and these companies have managed to, um, I, I hate to use the word extract, uh, maybe we can say derive <laughs> value from uh, these these insights that they've gleaned. So um, it is a little bit of a kind of a false comparison, I think, to, to make it seem like this was ever within reach of your average consumer who does not have the, the means to really clean it and, and use the data in a way that is actually profitable to them. Uh, I was reading an article based on this and the way out is actually uh, to de-identify the data and use it. Like it will it will take your data, but it will de-identify it and it will aggregate it and use it. Like for example, something as simple as the example, the article which I was reading mentioned that if someone watches Batman Begins on Netflix, then he will be recommended Dark Knight, obviously. But it, it doesn't need to identify it with the person that has seen it already. It's like coming from historical data and aggregated data. So I think that's the easy way out of it. And even if the legislation becomes serious, I think they will do that. They will say that we collect the data, then we de-identify it. So it will not be associated with the person itself, but it, it will like create aggregated generic data about people with some task that they have done in the past. Well, with an eye on the time, uh, let's just quickly wrap up with our, our closer. Although I should say that there's there's flexibility in the future. If we if we find something that we're really we're really talking about, we could do a two topic episode. Like there's we reserve the right to change the rules here. <laughs> so keep that in mind, guys, if you're ever like, oh man, I want to say more. But we'll move on to our closer topic for today, though, um, which based on an article from TechCrunch that was talking about MIT researchers training robots on task variation using pizza dough. The article itself discussed just the different actions that go into actually making dough and then spreading it out into a crust. These things are kind of providing the seed of the training for these these robotics in terms of recognizing variation in similar tasks. So just a real quick thing that I wanted to throw out to you guys, what are other simple but complex tasks that you can think of that could help train robots in developing systems for completing processes, always with an eye on eventual productive use cases? Obviously, they're not training these robots to make pizza dough, not clear yet where they will be deployed or applied. Um, but the idea is um, in the machine learning idea of, of training in terms of pattern recognition, task variation, et cetera. Um, what do you guys think? So one thing that I read about was uh, in the in the medical science field. Actually, so what they are doing is they are asking the robots to like uh, do very simple tasks, which is like bring stuff up to the particular patient or something. But uh, in tandem with that, what they are doing is they are also feeding in the patient's data like this patient is diabetic and this is the food 
that was bought for him uh, brought for him for lunch for dinner for whatever so that's kind of teaching the robot in order to like when you uh, like uh, when you associate the patient with the kind of food they are getting or for kind of medication they are being supplied time to time so i think that was uh, that is something a bit parallel it's a simple task but they are learning the complex task of uh, eventually uh, giving out proper i don't think it will happen very soon but at least under the supervision of some human touch involved it will work out that the robot is able to prescribe at least the diet of the patient or things like that just to build on that um Nathan, i think the reason you're you're reading about robots manipulating dough is because even something that apparently simple is hard for a robot one of the reasons that is 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 because robots are notoriously unstable um and this you know people have been building robots for decades and decades and when i say unstable there's actually a mathematical definition which means like a, a small change in one of the inputs or in one of the environmental factors can lead to a large change in the robot's behavior uh, which can then cause the robot to either create the wrong output or malfunction or tip over or blow up or whatever it is right so so robots are are notoriously prone to instability problems um so even something as relatively simple as manipulating dough can trigger these instabilities so i think they were kind of using dough as a nice relatively controlled environment but that does have some variations and then if you can teach a robot over thousands and thousands of iterations how to deal with those variations then maybe you can actually deploy it in in other scenarios that require uh some kind of fault tolerance it's an interesting approach it's, it's kind of an empirical approach which um you know that, that it's kind of one of the angles of attack that re researchers have used to try to make robots more stable um it's not necessarily a one that's going to win the day uh, there are other approaches to it. So, for example, um, one of the Caltech professors who I had met a couple of years ago, a guy named Professor Ames, is working on a much more um, mathematical approach to it. So he's using nonlinear dynamics and the equations behind, you know, some of the chaotic behavior that you see out there, whether it's, you know, weather phenomena and stuff like that, um, and using some of those same techniques to, to try to um, create a set of constraints for robotic behavior that'll guarantee stability. So that's that's kind of a completely different angle. And there are probably half dozen or so other approaches that could work. But that's that's kind of the holy grail of robotics right now is um, coming up with a consistent approach that uh, where you don't just train the robot to repeat the exact same behavior every time, but you want it to drive towards a certain outcome, even in the face of of obstacles or variations in its path. All right. Thanks a lot, Boaz. And Thanks. thank you, Shidish, also for uh, your contributions here. Really appreciate your discussion and uh, look forward to having you back on. Thanks a lot. That's it for this episode of Views from the Crow's Nest. As with any other podcast, if you enjoyed what you heard here today, we would appreciate it if you left some sort of rating or review on your podcast app of choice. Or you can share it with a friend or colleague if you think that they would enjoy the content that we are discussing here. My name is Nathan Johnson. And from all of us here at Fisher Jordan, thank you for listening. And we will see you from the crow's nest.